Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Narcotics Abuse Podcast with your host, all three of us. We're all hosting. All hosting. Uh-huh. Say hello, everyone. Hi, this is Nick Mirario. Hey, this is Tom Costigan. And I am Lucas Montesantos, and I got a little close to my mic there. There we go. So today, we're going to talk about what our title suggests. We're going to talk about narcotics abuse in Bloomington, Normal, Illinois, because that's where we go to college. We go to Heartland Community College in Normal, Illinois, and um, people be doing drugs here. So anyone want to talk about that? Um, I know being from Chicago, not to brag or anything, Mm -hmm. but... um, (laughs) This is one of the issues that definitely probably stood out to me most compared to, like, say, Chicago, like, gun violence or something. So this was definitely a good topic to uh, tackle instead of, say, like, gun violence or something else. Yeah, and definitely a big issue in Bloomington Normal specifically, too. You know, like, the opioid epidemic has obviously hit everywhere, but, you know, it's uh, Bloomington Normal really is no exception, and it has been a major issue, especially over the past, like, 20 years. Yeah. Um, Nick, I also come from around the Chicago yeah. area, not right in there, about a half hour away. And I come from a more wealthy suburb, and when you give kids money like that, they spend it on stuff like this a little too often. I believe So that. that is the main reason why I chose this topic and why we are all in this group. Um, I got a source pulled up, just sort of an intro stat, Um, In the Illinois Department of Public Health statewide semi-annual opioid report um, for February 2023, um, a lot of stuff was said. And just to, like, give some background on what's going on here, in 2022, with drug overdose fatalities, it's saying something like the leading cause of accidental death for Illinois residents aged 18 to 49 was that drug overdose fatalities. And um, 81% of those deaths were the result of opioid use. Um, That is the fact they sort of throw at you right away with this report. And um, there isn't something in that report that isn't alarming, really. Um, So that's sort of just what we're dealing with. We're gonna start with Tom's interview. For our first interview, I'm joined by Chief Judge Casey Costigan to get his perspective on substance and narcotics abuse in our community. Judge Costigan was appointed an associate judge in 2006 and served until he was elected a circuit judge in 2014. He served 16 years in the criminal division, and at the end of 2022, Costigan was selected to be the chief judge of the 11th Judicial Circuit, where he has served since. Thank you for taking the time to sit down to me today. Sit down with me today, Judge Costigan. I really appreciate it. No problem. Glad to do it. All right. So I'm just going to go ahead and jump right in with the questions. Um, it's no secret that narcotics abuse has been a big problem in our nation and in our community for some time now. What has your experience been like dealing with this issue during your time working in the legal system? And how, in your opinion, has it changed or developed over those years? Well, as you mentioned, I started as a judge in 2006, and I've been in the criminal division the majority of that time in my uh, judicial career. 
And in the criminal division, we see individuals every single day with substance abuse issues. Uh, it is something that ranges from alcohol to uh, just incredibly serious uh, addiction type issues. And um, so it is a problem in the community. Uh, it is a problem because uh, that addiction leads to consequences uh, that has an effect upon the entire community. Uh, so I've had a lot of experience dealing with these issues. I've presided over drug court uh, for several years, uh, which is a specialized court, which I know you'll get into here in a few minutes. Uh, but um, in how's it changed over time, uh, I think that uh, substances have become more dangerous over time. And uh, it is uh, becoming more prevalent in society in terms of the number of cases that we see with individuals with substance use and the uh, more severe uh, type substances that are, are uh, manifesting themselves in the community. Absolutely. Would you say that there is uh, more frequent availability for these kind of drugs, especially in recent times? Yes. Uh, I think that uh, the uh, amount of uh, substances that are in the community is more than when I uh, first started in the legal, and the nature of the substances, again, are, is more severe. Absolutely. So currently there's an ongoing debate regarding the, the approach to this problem and whether the priority should be placed more on punishment or rehabilitation. What's your opinion on this and how have you seen that dichotomy play out in the court system? There's not one approach that you can take with substance abuse issues and say, well, this is the uh, approach that should be incorporated in every person who has substance issues. Uh, there's not one approach. It has to be a multifaceted uh, type approach when dealing with this situation. Is punishment uh, uh, an appropriate uh, solution? At times it is. Uh, some individuals need to understand that there's consequences for their action and the punishment shows them that there are consequences uh, to, the, to the point where they don't want to continue to live a lifestyle that's uh, associated with those consequences. And so they come to the realization that certain things need to change and that's when they get on board uh, to change. That being said, substance abuse is a, uh, is a medical issue. It is a uh, disease and uh, it's not solved by simply uh, putting somebody uh, in jail or putting somebody in prison. Uh, there needs to be uh, rehabilitation uh, for that individual. That individual needs to have the tools in their toolbox, as we frequently say, to know how to handle situations when they come up uh, to where they can handle those without the use of a substance. And that takes time, that takes effort, and that takes multiple uh, faceted approaches to go ahead and do that. Treatment, uh, things such as NA and AA are great programs uh, to where people are associated with other individuals who have been down the same path that they're going down. And they can go ahead and teach them, they can go ahead and show them an understanding in terms of uh, that it is not a moral failure. Uh, what it is is the disease. And here's how you go ahead and handle that. And uh, that leads to accountability. And so the consequences of punishment leads to accountability to where they may not want to do things anymore. And also you have the multi multifaceted treatment as well that uh, will help the individual uh, know how to handle situations when they arise. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, that's a great approach. You know, you have... Um, 
sort of those measures in place for prevention, but also for rehabilitation to uh, help these people sort of get over these issues and return to society and, you know, be better for it. It's really a failure when we have to incarcerate somebody. It's a failure not only on the person's part who has to be incarcerated, but on society's part as well. Uh, society couldn't figure out a way to keep this person uh, from uh, committing a crime or committing uh, certain offenses that require them to be removed from society for a period of time. And so uh, incarceration really is not something uh, we like to do. Uh, it is necessary at times. And when it is necessary for the safety of the person, for the safety of the public, or uh, just for uh, uh, general consequence for their actions, uh, then it has to happen. Uh, but really, uh, it is not the first resort. Uh, really, it's almost the last resort. Interesting. Um, as you talk about incarceration, uh, it reminds me, you mentioned earlier that you served as the presiding court over, or the presiding judge over drug court for many years before becoming chief judge. Could you tell us a bit about what drug court is, what it entails, and how you think it has been effective in combating substance abuse in Bloomington Normal? Sure. Uh, drug court is a specialized court uh, that takes individuals who are high risk, high needs, otherwise people who would be going to prison uh, for certain offenses, uh, and they do have a substance abuse issue. In drug court, uh, they are uh, on a specialized form of probation uh, to where there is a very, very high degree of accountability and uh, supervision uh, for these individuals. As a matter of fact, drug court's limited at, in McLean County to 50 people. Uh, and those individuals will have to be randomly tested uh, for drugs several times a week. So, and when I say randomly, they do not know when they're going to be tested. They have to call into a hotline every morning uh, by a certain time, and uh, they will see whether they're on the list to be tested that day or not. Uh, so they don't know. And then uh, they have to go to a certain number of meetings uh, each week. Uh, that includes uh, treatment meetings. That includes group rehabilitation. That may include AA and NA meetings. Uh, and a specialized probation is developed for these individuals. They have to attend court once a week uh, to where the judge will call them up and uh, have them uh, show their accountability that week. If they are late, if they uh, do something uh, that uh, they're late for treatment, they're late for anything, there's consequences for that. And the consequences can vary. Uh, it can be incarceration in the county jail for maybe a night, two nights, or it can be writing papers, it can be write, uh, attending more meetings, it can be community service, those types of things. And uh, so uh, drug court is highly intensive form of probation for individuals who uh, are uh, addicted to substances. Now, in terms of its success, uh, the recidivism rate uh, for uh, drug court is substantially lower than just sending somebody to prison. And so it does work when people are on board, but they need to be on board because it is a very difficult program. As a matter of fact, I've heard a number of people say it's easier to just go sit in prison than it is to go through this program. But the program, again, will give you those tools for the future that you need to handle the situations that arise uh, to where uh, just spending your time in prison, the likelihood of recidivating uh, once you get out, if you haven't had that treatment, is, is substantially higher. Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting to hear about um, 
you know, how rigorous the process is going through drug court. But, um, you know, it does make sense uh, when, when you're talking about the recidivism rate and how you are really uh, helping these people become better instead of uh, just resorting to something like incarceration. Well, not only that, if you, it helps society as well. Uh, because most of these individuals are very good individuals who have just gotten down the wrong path, who have a disease, that need help with the disease, but unfortunately face a stigma uh, from society that uh, society doesn't want to get on board with helping them with that disease or putting the resources towards that. But when they can go ahead and conquer this, when they can go ahead and get it under control, uh, these are individuals who will now be working, uh, who will be paying taxes as opposed to having the public tax dollars incarcerate them. And uh, if they don't get treatment while sitting in prison, likely reincarcerating them. And so rather than spending potentially uh, over $30,000 a year to incarcerate somebody in prison, what we're doing is we're changing them into a taxpaying citizen, into a responsible citizen who can go out and be a functional member of society. Yeah, absolutely. Now you talk about drug court, and that is definitely one approach uh, that is given to the situation, but as the chief judge, you have this sort of unique and comprehensive perspective on how this issue has affected the community and its citizens. Going forward, how do you think the approach to this situation can be changed or improved in order to address the issue most effectively and to help those who have been affected by it? Well, I think this, I think that uh, there needs to be uh, a greater degree of treatment, a greater degree of openness from the public uh, to help these individuals who do uh, suffer from uh, substance issues. Uh, it is a situation to where these individuals who have suffered from su substance issues generally uh, isolate themselves. They've done things to uh, turn away their families, turn away their friends, and so they're basically isolated. And, uh, and it's easy to see why. Uh, when you see a number of things, why, what they've done, uh, it's easy to see why people turn their back uh, on these individuals because they do uh, certain things that uh, are, are difficult uh, to hang in there with. Uh, however, uh, again, it is a disease, and most of these individuals would not choose this path down life if they had the choice. Uh, they would go ahead and choose something substantially different. However, this disease creeps up on them, and they can't tell you why they made the decision that they did, but they did, and, uh, and it's turned people away. So I think that uh, the way uh, we can help uh, those are is to uh, go ahead and uh, to get on board with uh, different aspects of treatment. Uh, to not only look from a punishment standpoint, which again is effective, uh, but also a rehabilitative uh, perspective as well. And have people open to this idea, the general public open to this idea uh, in terms of how uh, to go ahead and best treat this. Yeah, I think um, that, that sense of community that you're talking about is really important when approaching uh, this sort of issue and seeing it as the disease that it is and how it is affecting these people who are currently uh, suffering with some sort of substance abuse. Uh, I think uh, really providing a lot of compassion and empathy towards the issue uh, is a great way for a lot of people to you know, really try to understand it a little more and uh, help those people who have really been affected by it. Well, that's true. And, and there is compassion and empathy for the individual 
but there's also accountability. Sure. Uh, they need to be on board as well. And uh, it's not an easy path for them. Uh, quite frankly, uh, the individuals that I've talked to who have walked this path said it's been the most difficult thing that they've ever done in their life. And so uh, we need to go ahead and help them along that path, but hold them accountable and also provide them the resources uh, that uh, will go ahead and help them uh, down the path as well. Sure. And um, and as you're discussing sort of uh, these programs, like I guess from a more government-based perspective, like drug court or, or any other approaches to it, um, I think sometimes as just like a regular everyday citizen, it can be really easy to feel sort of powerless in this fight against narcotics abuse and substance abuse. So how do you think, or what do you think some ways are that we as everyday people can contribute to these efforts and really make a difference? Well, it goes back to what I was saying in terms of, uh, uh, you know, being open uh, to uh, treatment, uh, being open to, uh, we, we basically place a stigma on these people, uh, and that stigma might not necessarily be fair. Uh, in terms of why don't they just stop? Well, they can't just stop. Uh, it is a situation to where they need help stopping. And a lot of people who, uh, who uh, go down this path don't know where to go. Uh, they don't know who to turn to. And if society was had more open views towards the help uh, and towards uh, getting people the treatment that they need, I think that that would be a step in the right direction. Uh, we have a lot of... Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, uh, for people who want to stay anonymous. And I completely understand that. But it is anonymity because they don't want that stigma attached to them uh, to where a person who might have a disease such as cancer or something else, uh, everybody rallies around that person. A uh, person who has uh, the disease of substance abuse, people run from that person. And uh, it may not necessarily be fair uh, in terms of uh, uh, that, but until people realize that this is a disease, that disease that needs treating, uh, then um, that is, that's problematic. And I'll just say one other thing is society should not tolerate uh, the uh, drug dealing, uh, especially the drugs that are being, uh, I said in the beginning, we're seeing more of the hard type drugs. Uh, and when you see stuff such as fentanyl uh, being used, society should take a very hard approach on that, especially the people who are dealing that. Uh, it's a deadly drug. Uh, it's highly addictive and it does, uh, does kill. Uh, and so the drugs such as, uh, uh, I've seen the progression uh, from marijuana uh, to uh, fentanyl to heroin uh, to methamphetamine. Methamphetamine is a huge problem at this point in time. And uh, we need to be firm in terms of the people who are bringing that in, the people who are dealing it, uh, and the people who are addicted to that substance. Yes, we do need to be firm with them, but we also need to lend a helping hand to make sure that they can recover. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, sort of keeping that balance between destigmatizing sort of the troubles that these people are facing while still really condemning um, sort of the act of spreading it or getting more of these drugs on the street. I, I sort of think that balance is, is a lot of where, you know, a lot of solutions can be found, you know, where it is compassion for these people while still taking a hard stance that allows them to sort of get on the right track to get better. True. 
And uh, I, you know, I think that's the approach. Uh, we continue to look at uh, and continue to develop uh, medications that uh, that help in this area. Uh, medically assisted treatment uh, is something that I think we'll see more of in the future, um, such as uh, uh, different types of uh, drugs that will go ahead and eliminate cravings. Uh, there are different types of drugs that uh, go ahead and help along the path. But again, those are just part of a combination of approaches that need to be taken. There is not one solution that will ever, at least uh, that I foresee, uh, be a single solution to this issue. It has to be multifaceted. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on here, Judge Costigan. I really appreciate your time. Uh, this has been Judge, Chief Judge Casey Costigan giving us his perspective on substance and narcotics abuse in the Bloomington Normal community. Uh, Judge, is there anything you'd like to say before you leave? No, I, again, it's just uh, something I think an understanding uh, goes a long way, and uh, it's not an easy issue to understand uh, because, uh, again, it's a very difficult issue. And uh, it's things like this, the exploration of uh, young people such as yourself, uh, that will eventually uh, make the difference here in terms of combating this problem. Uh, do you feel like the response to the issue of narcotic abuse in Bloomington Normal has been adequate? Um, I gotta go with a leaning said? towards a, a no. Yeah, I, and I, I think that could go for everywhere too, like not just yeah. here. Like it's obviously a countrywide thing, but yeah. still, like there's a lot more that could definitely be done, and I feel like some places like uh, Chestnuts, like making a positive change, but I think the issue definitely needs to get more out there and more people need to notice. Sure. Uh, what, else, oh, uh, what else do you think Bloomington Normal sort of as a community can be doing to address this issue? Um, so one idea that I came up with when we were doing one of these assignments is trying to get at the education system, like uh, not elementary, because I honestly don't want to scare kids like that, sure. but middle school and high school. Um, I don't want to do something like D.A.R.E. because did D.A.R.E. work? No. Yeah, isn't no. that like a big <laughs> Um But something where someone from your community and not a cop who's just going to scare you straight. Yeah. Because um, scaring straight never works yeah, right. um, especially at like a certain age yeah. like that at like a certain age like you feel like you should rebel against that not like actually follow what the dude's saying and also i've been at my schools in the past talked like bet, like called for an assembly like oh we're having an assembly today some dude who just abused xanax and fentanyl and opioids for three years and destroyed his life is and who got straight and is a public speaker now is about to talk to us. You don't really remember him, and um, really it does the same thing. It's just trying to scare you straight, but it's a little better than a cop because it's a real person yeah. who went through it. I think so. Yeah. yeah. It's not I think, someone who's just, like, fighting against the problem. No, they are. The, the, like, they were, they're they literally they're fighting victims. the problem. Yeah. yeah. I think when, like, so early, if you get, like, somebody from... You know, like the law uh, side of things, like a cop or, or somebody on that side, it immediately almost sets up an opposition between, like, 
the people telling you not to do it and you. So in exactly. like in that moment, like you are immediately getting set up that it's like, hey, like, you know, it is us versus you if you do this. And I don't really think that's a good way to approach it as opposed to building that sense of community. Yeah, I I believe that something like I experienced in school was a positive experience because it showed me how much your life can be damaged by something like this. But I also think that we should be looking into people who work at these facilities that help this problem, like Chestnut, um, should also be getting people out there that know what they're talking about because maybe they don't deal with it personally, but they work around people who are. You know, they literally work at facilities that treat people who are dealing with addictions to over-the-counters or everything, you know. Because um, I feel like a good mix and a little bit more involvement. Yeah, instead of... Just an assembly once a year. Or, or like... If that. Or, know? like, maybe, like, you being a victim of it, like, you have to be the one to reach out, maybe make it, like, more accessible because a lot of times I feel... Like, people have trouble, like, getting the help they need, like, say, with something like therapy, too. Yeah, like, it is so taboo to, to talk about this stuff to anyone. Yeah. Whereas, you know, you go to any party, and, you know, everyone always talks about, you know, alcohol like like it's water, you know? Right. And um, you joke about it, like, your friends who are like, oh, dude, you're addicted to alcohol. Um, but you don't really joke about that with hard drugs yeah. that could kill you easily. Definitely, Definitely. More just like a taboo topic for yeah. sure. And especially with just the fact, fighting the fact that men refuse to seek therapy just in general. Yeah. It's it's almost like what do you do? Yeah. You know? I think an important part too is like very much like almost humanizing the people who have been affected by this. Yeah. I think it's so easy to say like you know, look at that person, like, on drugs who has, like, a major issue who's absolutely destroyed their life. Like, that could never be me. I, like, would never do that. You know, yeah. but I, I feel like that just removes the entire, like, process of how it even began. And I think, like, really humanizing those people uh, go would, like, go a long way in showing the real-life effects of these sort of drugs. Yeah, not really treating, like, the people who have actually used them, like, some sort of, like, black sheep or, like, outcasts. Exactly. Like, make them, like, feel more, like, human in a way I guess yeah exactly and like human welcome like to like talk about it or get that help instead of saying like oh you've done that before I would never do that right mm-hmm. yeah right. there's uh, there's a healthy relationship to be had I believe with everything yeah that you have in life like down to the vacuum that's sitting in the room with us like, a healthy relationship with that vacuum right now is I'm not going to touch it and I'm going to try to ignore it for the rest of this podcast and then forget about it when I leave the room. Uh, but something that's really involved in my life, like my cell phone, it gets a lot more complicated how to be healthy with it. There's a healthy way to treat drugs, and that could be never touching them, you know, uh, in some people, but for other people who have already dipped their toe in the water... There are other ways to be healthy to deal with your certain circumstance, you know. Um, Tom, any more questions you want to ask that yep. big person? Uh, how do you think that this issue has changed or developed over the recent years? From what I've seen in sources that I've researched for this topic, it's only gotten worse. 
Yeah, um, only worse. And it seems to not be parabolic right now, but um, definitely accelerating. Yeah, I'll, yeah, you guys can talk. I'll try to find. I saw I a uh, a source, and it, and it is like a little bit outdated, but it does sort of reflect um, just that like the percentage growth over years from like the early two thousand teens, uh, just like rapidly, just exponentially growing percentage per year. Yeah. So like I found that in Illinois in two thousand sixteen, it was one thousand eight hundred eighty nine opioid related deaths were reported which was a 76% increase from 2013. Jeez. So, I mean, it, it's just, it's grown insanely, and, you know, it hasn't stopped since then. It, it definitely, like, old articles like that, it definitely seemed like a bad omen towards things like what were to come, and it should have been something that should have been, like, tackled right away instead of thinking, like, oh, like, it's just as easy to avoid by just saying no or something. Right. Like, no, this is going to be something that can and will eventually, like, lead to something that's worse. Like, say something like the crack epidemic, like, in the 80s. Like, people were saying, just say no to that. But that ended up, like, tearing communities apart and shit. I feel like that's just such an oversimplification of the issue. You know, when it is so prevalent and it surrounds the community so much, peddling something like a just say no. Yeah, you, like, know, you it, can't it just say no. It feels helpful, but, like, there, there's just no way that's really going to actually be effective. Yeah, yeah, especially being exposed to it. Like, it's addictive. Like, right. especially people with who have faced, like, addictive, like, personalities and, like, genetics with things like that. It's going to be much harder to just say no. You're going to actually have to get that help, not just someone telling you, no, don't do that. Right. Yeah. I mean, approaching it circumstantially, when you're being offered something like this, you can't just say no, like we're saying. There are a million ways to say no it would, with in just English and the human language. And uh, it's hard to navigate how you say no sometimes with a certain friend who you might be so super close with, might be a best friend. Um, and sometimes you don't have a choice. Ignore yeah. that possibility. But um, yeah, it's, I, I would say it's definitely getting worse though. Yeah. Um, I mean, in that same um, semi-annual drug report from the IDPH that I mentioned earlier, it also said uh, right under it that um, in tw- now this is you might think it's cherry picking, but also you could just see oh it's alarming. In twenty twenty, three kids from the ages thirteen to seventeen, so kids, yeah, died from synthetic opioid overdose, and when. You see, like when I see synthetic, I'm thinking fentanyl right away because right. like someone who is not certified is making this. On and their I own. think I, I think too that yeah. reflects just like, especially yeah, just how it's developed over the past few years. Because now you're looking at more synthetic compounds that are just so you know, like so much more dangerous. Where it becomes like, you know, that chance for overdose just gets exponentially increased when you're using more dangerous compounds and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, and so it does become like just so much of a bigger issue when that sort of stuff gets involved. I know this is kind of contradicting what you just said, but like my girlfriend once had like an eye injury for softball and like it was so like severe that like she had to go to the hospital and like she was freaking out so much that like they had to put her under with like they gave her all types of drugs, including fentanyl. And like they gave her like such like a little amount that, like, obviously it wouldn't, like, do anything bad, like, kill you. Like, it's safe, but, like, I feel once it gets, like, 
on the streets and like people get like a hold of it like like kids or something like that like that's like when it becomes like the actual issue I don't and see it how becomes, that's contradicting like, yeah. well like I I'll, I could have worded that better like that's more right. like I, I don't know like I forget, completely forget what you said but it's just something like once it gets on the streets it seems like that's the problem but like the problem is I feel it's just so easy to access literally yeah. can access if, if a little kid can a- access it just like what you're in sixth grade when you're thirteen, yeah, yeah, like, around that. Like, how could they access that? Yeah, um, the the source, the the article actually was showing a sort of acceleration with the problem. I wasn't even done, it, like um, actually explaining it. It gets worse. Um, in th- in twenty twenty three, kids died from synthetic opioid use, and in twenty twenty one. Sorry, if I said that wrong. 2020, it was three. 2021, 14 followed suit. And that's a 367% increase. Now, the numbers are small, but three to 14 is scary. It's a big deal. Because these are kids in middle school and high school dying from most likely overdoses of drugs that were given to them that they thought were safe but were not, uh, most likely fentanyl. Um, And meanwhile... The non-fatal reported incidents of opioid overdoses outnumbered their fatal counterparts by more than six hundred percent on average. And uh, wow. when you talk about that, they're non-fatal. So mm-hmm. that means these are just the cases that made it to a medical institute, like a hospital. Like we rushed them to the hospital. How many people survive on their own? You know. Right. Absolutely. Um, yeah. The fen- uh, the fentanyl issue is one that I kind of wanted to talk about. Hello, I'm here with Chris Nyman, a retired police officer of the Normal Police Department. I'm pronouncing that right? Yep. Nyman. Um, Chris, uh, introduce yourselves to us. Uh, We'd love to get to know you. Uh, You said you served on the force for 20 years? Yep. Um, I started my career at Normal PD in January of 03. And in that capacity, I started as a patrol officer, like everybody does. Um, and then after that, I was part of our gang unit for about five years. It was basically focusing on gang and drug suppression in Bloomington Normal. Um, and they just kind of let us deal with like higher crime areas and just let us kind of go around and deal with like significant problems like that. After that, I went back to patrol. Um, and then I was there for a few more years and I went to uh, our criminal investigations division, which is where I was a detective. I focused mainly on domestic violence crime, uh, but did a little bit of everything. Came out of that and went back to patrol where I retired out of there. In addition to all those other things, I was a field training officer, so I trained rookie officers when they were coming on. Um, I was a a bike officer, which was great during the summer, just to kind of get out and change the pace. I was on our our emergency response unit, which is like our SWAT team, where I was our, our shield operator, so I was the first guy in through the door. Um, and it just kind of did some other things around the PD, but that's those are kind of like the highlights. I ended up retiring in April of 23. Amazing. Um, that's a lot. That's a, that's a <laughs> lot of stuff. Uh, I was uh, wondering, going into this interview, if you'd like to let the public, and I guess Professor Petrie know, um, what got you 
interested in joining the force in the first place um, yeah uh, back in 2003 sure so I got into it pretty much the reason a lot of people get into it they want to help people um, there's this you know idea that people are just want to get into policing for like the the action and, and things like that and there's probably a percentage that are but the majority of the people that get into law enforcement or fire or EMS they are just they're people you know they're they're people people they want to get to, to places where they can help others and that was kind of my my drive I went to Western Illinois University in Macomb and I actually started my career my, my career path was elementary education where I was studying to be a teacher for three and a half years and my roommate um, was in law enforcement and I was really kind of more interested in, in his stuff so I changed um, during like the end of my college career and went into law enforcement instead. That's actually really interesting uh, that your roommate got you into something that I wish I had a roommate who was doing interesting stuff that I'd like to do <laughs> because I had undecided here but and with my major but I guess I can um, continue narrowing down this interview to exactly what this type of podcast is about which sure. is my assignment um, the question that I have mainly for you today is over your 20-year service career in the you said in the patrols and the gang unit and in the you were a detective mm -hmm. for a significant portion um, during those years, do you, wh what would you say was, how often, and I'm sorry, how often would you say you would run into cases that dealt with narcotics overdoses, people overdosing on narcotics? Um, I'd say probably during the last um, 10 years of my career, there was a, a significant jump. Okay. Um, a lot of it had to deal with uh, heroin and opioids. That was always something that was going on, but there's definitely been a huge spike in it. Um, a lot of the, the fatal overdoses that I had to deal with, when all the reports and toxicology stuff would come back, it would it would typically be, be taint, tainted with fentanyl, which is even like a stronger opiate. It's like 100 times more potent than morphine, um, 20 to 40 more times potent than heroin itself. Yeah. So that would lead to a lot of problems, but it was just becoming more and more of a problem that they uh, started outfitting officers with our own, nar our own Narcan to, to use, which has been used, you know, a lot um, successfully to get people back that were, that were clearly going to be, going to be dying. Yeah. Um, I've heard it been called naloxone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is that what it is? Yep. That's yeah. like, yeah, Narcan is just like the common name. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's some heavy stuff. I was going. I was wondering. Yeah, I get to get specifically into the type of drugs and compounds that people are overdosing on, fatally or non-fatally. You look into the Illinois Department of Public Health's website, and they've got a map of the state, and uh, they've got all other non-fatal in terms of fatal and non-fatal overdoses. If, uh, they've got all other substances and then they've got heroin mm -hmm. because it's such a big deal. Yes. Um, also, I've found through my research that what you mentioned, fentanyl, mm -hmm. is becoming very recently a very big problem for the whole country. Mm -hmm. um, that people are creating it on their own synthetically and they don't exactly know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. That is what is really, really scary because people don't, people aren't professionals a lot of the time. Um, would you say that what 
in what years would you say fentanyl? First of all, what year do you remember you hearing the word fentanyl for the first time? Oh gosh, I don't know. I would say it was probably around like maybe that 10 year mark. So maybe like 2012, 13, something like that is where it really became like noticeable that we started kind of paying attention to it. And then towards the end, the 2020 mm -hmm. year mark, would you say that fentanyl became just a huge problem in every overdose you were yeah. seeing? Yeah, yep, 100%. Percent. I would say the, the majority of, like I said, the, the fatal ones, they would come back fentanyl, and that was usually, you know, and, and the thing was, it's not just heroin that was getting stepped on with fentanyl. It was other things. They were lacing, like, wheat with it, and that was some of the issues, like, we were having people just that were smoking weed, and all of a sudden they're, you know, not doing so hot because it's laced with fentanyl. Yeah. And the other th problem is like the, I guess the, the pedestrian or officer exposure to it because it doesn't take a lot of fentanyl to have a bad reaction to it. So if an officer were to open up a bag and see like a powder where they're thinking this might be cocaine, this might be, you know, heroin, this might be something else, who knows? Just a small exposure to that can completely take them out. That is, and you said um, you were around that stuff frequently. I was around, well, I wasn't around it. Um, usually, like, my my stops were involving mainly just, like, what we knew just to be regular heroin, cocaine, crack, things like that. But the fentanyl thing, the, that came to our attention when we started going to the overdoses and the, you know, the deceased people calls. Yeah. Um, in my research, I found that a lot of the non-fatal cases don't get reported. But of course, with the fatal cases, you know, there's a dead body to take care of. People, mm -hmm. loved ones, um, are worried. You hear mo most of those cases, mm -hmm. if not all. Would you say that with the fatal overdose cases, were they almost completely, all of them, mixing drugs, like you said, mixing heroin and fentanyl and cocaine and or softer drugs like cannabis, were they almost always a, uh, a mixture? I would say yes. The problem is you can't tell, um, doctors can probably tell, but I can't tell, were these taken at the same time? So yeah. maybe they smoked weed, you know, two days before, and they took, you know, heroin that was laced with fentanyl that day that led to it. So their toxicology report will come back. It'll show, you know, cocaine, weed, all these different things that you know you can't tell was this like all at once or was this spread out over over time there probably is a way to tell it but i don't know but yeah for the most part you were seeing combinations yeah and um that pretty much wraps up my questions for today okay um chris it's been awesome talking to you thank you so much thank you what do you think is contributing to how taboo it is to talk about something like this? Like, what do you think it is contributing from a societal level and why it's difficult to even recommend a friend to a place like Chestnut? Or it's difficult to admit to yourself, yeah, I need to go. Or it's difficult to ever admit that there is a problem. I think that there is such a stigma around the type of person who would allow themselves to become addicted to a substance like an opioid or something like that, that these people don't want to identify with that sort of person, that sort of character that has been created.
And I think all the like admitting yourself to a facility or really getting help like that is like the ultimate admission that you sort of fit that role. And I think that goes back to a lot of what we were saying earlier about just really sort of destigmatizing the whole thing and humanizing the people who have, you know, fallen, you know, victim to these sort of substances. I just I think that's going to go so far in allowing people to actually feel comfortable reaching out to get the help that they really need. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Like, with that stigma, like makes people like the actual victims feel like the people that are actually like making it worse. But like, no, they're just regular people who are vulnerable to this kind of shit that's going on. Regular, normal ass. Yeah, people normal like people who have been vulnerable enough to. Act, not not vulnerable like in a bad way genetically genetically situationally, like, like, yeah like uh, mentally like everything like that like they're the victim in this and like a lot of the time like the thought of like going to therapy for some people might be outdated like depending on like what household like you're in like I went to therapy like last year and like my dad was against it he's like you don't need to do that mm-hmm. and like my dad had that like outdated thought but like my mom on the other hand like she's like yeah you should so like i could see how like people like will be against it but at the same time it's like you need to welcome it like talking about things help it's not just holding it in and like one day just like unleashes it'll get worse mm-hmm. i agree 100 percent. um i think too like like you were saying, I like what we were saying earlier, and Lucas especially, when you were saying talking about it being a case by case basis, I think that sort of destigmatizing the issue goes a really long way in that. Just because when you throw these blanket statements over this person is X or the type of person who would use drugs is X, you know, I think that just takes away so much of the personal side of it and all the factors that led to potential addiction. And again, just makes it a lot harder. And so I think really looking at it on a case-by-case basis and the factors that led you personally to this point allows you to see the picture, you know, in full view and not just align yourself with uh, a stereotype that, you know, we've been, you know, peddled over the years. I totally agree. I think that the pendulum needs to switch, sway a little bit towards the direction of humanization. I think that's the, the golden word here. Right. Uh, humanize these people um, but I do believe that uh, there is a balance to be found with still being fearful of identifying as that person sure like I can when like uh, I can use the example of my Tommy John surgery mm. I'm a pitcher I play baseball on May 2nd 2022 when I injured myself a lot of the thoughts going through my head that day and the weeks later on were I don't want to be that kid. I don't want to, I can't, it can't be me. I can't be going through Tommy John. This can't be it. Like this is, it's, it feels dooming. Yeah. feels uh, like you're, like uh, it's doomsday. Um, but that fear can be channeled into something much more positive down the road if you accept it. And I had to learn that. Um, I pushed off my surgery for 10 months, you know. Um, But a lot of that fear that I had of going through under the knife um, turned into um, a sort of mindset that I wouldn't have had 
if I wasn't so fearful. Does that make sense? Like, if yeah, I wasn't yeah. so scared of it, then I wouldn't have... Because fear is associated with respect of the power that this thing can hold over you. Absolutely. I, I was... In my fearful... I was fearful of Tommy John surgery because I respected what it stood for. I respected how much work was going to have to go into that rehab. And that turned into me fulfilling that role when I actually got the surgery. I've been talking about myself for the last like minute, but I need to stop and turn this back on the problem of opioids. When you accept that, you know what? I am that person. I, that was me. That can be turned into a work ethic to come clean, to fight it, to associate yourself with friends and family that can help you heal um, in the future because you know that those strategies work because you've heard about them, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because you know that this is what people do to come clean, so I'm going to do it. There are a reason they're popular because they work. You know? Yeah. True. Um, yeah. I think just really having that support system and, um, you know, people close to you who love you, who really want to see you do well and, and get better, it's just, it really is important when you have sort of fallen into that place. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, Nick, you want to get into what you want to talk about with your interview? Um, yeah. What do you guys think, like, the mental differences between, like, an addiction and, like, a dependence, if there is one? You want to take this one, Tom? I <laughs> talked too much last time. I got you. I, I think what it comes down to is um, just sort of that need, you know, because people, I, I guess it's, it's tough to put into words almost, but, like, you know, you become dependent on a substance, you need it, like, to function, but... You know, it's it's just that. It's very, like, baseline. I think addiction is when it goes further. It's, like, when, you know, you need it all the time. And or, like, maybe become, like, desperate for it. Exactly. Yeah. You know, like, dependent is, like, you know. Like a medication, maybe. Like, sure. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. You know, it's, like, you need it, but I think addiction becomes so much more dangerous because it's almost, like, you know, it's, like, not you need it as much as it is, like, you can't be without it. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's where that comes in. And the line between them, are, it's, I feel like it's so gray. You know, there's no, you know, hard line where it's like, you know, this is dependence, this is addiction, and there's the line between them. And so I think, you know, having that sort of psychological awareness and those resources available goes a really long way in identifying it. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting question. Do you think that they exist on a spectrum together like uh, a more lighter side would be dependency but down on the down in the trenches on the other side of the spectrum would be addiction or do you think they don't exist um, on the spectrum? I think they both like could exist at the same time if that makes sense because like with like so no what do you mean like like it wouldn't it's not it's because one I feel side like, uh, one side could be like Obviously, one side might be better than the other. Like, what I'm saying say, is, like, do you think that they're a spectrum, like, addiction is just a higher intensity of dependence, or no? Oh. Because um, I'm leaning towards no. From what Tom said, what I think, I don't, I don't think really? that addiction is always just dependence turned up a few notches. Right. Yeah. And I didn't mean to uh, necessarily word it that way. 
I think I think it's sort of yes and no. I think that they play into each other yeah, for sure. I but I, d- I didn't want to. I don't think you know, you did. I don't want to play across that. Uh, I think they, that they're the same, just yeah. to different degrees. Like, yeah, I, I do, th- yeah, yeah, I don't think you did. Yeah, okay. I think I they just, can like, coexist yeah. if that makes sense. Like, I do believe that. Say too. like, kids our age could be like on like say like a medication for like say if they like suffer from like some like mental illness or something, like they may depend on that to like make their day better. But on the other hand, they could be addicted to something like say like a lot of kids our age like nicotine or like vaping, like. It could be an addiction and a dependence like that, where like the dependence isn't like a bad thing per se, but like say that dependence could maybe even like lead to somewhere where they're like, oh, if I'm taking this substance, like, what else can I take to make myself feel even better than I am right now? Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. I don't. Yeah, I I I, I wanted to pose it because I personally don't think that addiction is just a higher intensity of dependency because I think of dependency sometimes just over-the-counter medicine. Like, you get sick and you get prescribed Zyrtec. Yeah. You know, I'm dependent on it for a while. Dependent on it for like, like a week or something like, like that. they prescribed me Zyrtec when I was in middle school and I took it for seven years every day, one tablet in the morning. Seriously? Every day. Because they thought I had that bad of allergies. Huh. They told me to do that. Last Christmas, I stopped taking it, like literally on Christmas Day. Like I was dependent on Zyrtec. I never thought about it. I didn't care about it. I don't. F- I didn't feel like you needed. I wanted it, it per se. But part of me thought I needed it. Oh, you know. Mm-hmm. I was just like, what happens if I stop? I stopped for two weeks. For a week, terrible allergies. Oh my god, so bad. <laughs> yeah. Next week it was all right. I'm fine now. It's been. It's October of the next year and I you know I never needed the shit ever again yeah you progressively just like weaned yourself so that was that was my experience with dependence but with addiction I feel like it's, it's definitely it's harder to get yeah. off it and I think too that's where sort of opioids become so dangerous is because you talk about like Zyrtec over the counter and stuff like that but I think with something that has such a high potential for addiction because of these insane effects that you can get by just taking a little bit, that's where it, there's just so much more danger, I think, for that dependence to almost become addiction. Me, yeah. personally, like, I'm, I'm, my family, like, on both my dad and my mom's side, really addictive personalities, like, family members have been, like, in and out of, like, AA and have, like, died from this kind of stuff. And for the longest time, like, throughout high school, I was uh, prescribed Adderall. Mm-hmm. And, like, it made me feel, like, better. And, like, say, like, days, like, when I'd forget to take it, like, I'd feel, like, not all, like, there. But, like, if, like I stopped taking it. Taking it. I haven't taken it in, like, two years, which is, like, I don't feel, like, I feel good now. Like, I feel safe. Mm-hmm. But part of me felt scared in a way of, like, oh, like, other people in my family, like, at first may have like depended on stuff like this then progressively like addicted so like right that's like like i told like my parents that like i need to i'm gonna stop taking it if that's okay and they're like yeah that's completely up to you and i think it's good that i did that because i think in a way i might have like an addictive personality like sick with the people i hang out with maybe mm-hmm. in a way like a lot of them are like similar but nothing like in a harmful way i think that's a good way to like vary it 
like with you like with the Zyrtec thing like you were like dependent on it but then like now like you're fine if that makes sense yeah I um I'd say Gatorol right now actually and you know I you know I, I think like we were saying earlier having a, like a healthy fear of it and the power that it can hold over you is really important yeah like I, I take Adderall I usually do like like four days on three days off for a week is like yeah I did mine I, I did mine like every day <laughs> but yeah I and I, I have enough medicine that I could do, like I could take it every day and then be fine but I like I'm I'm so scared of it like I'm terrified of getting addicted and so I like I think it has caused me to be so you know very Aware rigorous like with the routine and like never taking more than you know the dosage that I'm supposed to and even at times dropping my doses when I notice the side effects are getting a little too much I think just keeping an eye on that and like we said just having that healthy fear of what you know that addiction can look like and what it can lead to you know I, I think that's super important for sure yeah, I've never taken it, so I don't know. I'm trying. I like there's a wall in between me understanding exactly what you guys are talking about, but mm-hmm. I have a good idea. I think that the word addictive personality, though, gets thrown out a little too much. Yeah. Because don't we all kind of have one? Yeah, there I mean, could there be a better word for it. I mean, how many times do you really come across a person who is just so laid back, so chillax about everything that you're like, there's no way this person could get addicted to something. They just, they let life come to them. Like, rarely. Rarely, yeah. Like, how often do you ever visit Alabama and meet Not the people awesome. there? Obviously. I'm joking. That was terrible. That was a terrible joke. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> but, didn't get that one. <laughs> um, just country people. Like, I'm, I'm picturing someone in a log cabin who like sitting on, like, lives a porch off or something. the land like even chilling. even then, they're, they're li- everyone, everyone's lives are so exciting in their own little ways and yeah. so detailed. We all get addicted to something, you know? Sure. I think, too, though, it, it just does come down. There are people who are just so much more vulnerable to this kind of stuff. And like you were saying, case-by-case basis. But, you know, I've known people who, you know, can have a drink and then be like, all right, that's like enough for me and then I've also known people who have had a drink and they you know say like that that isn't enough you know and I do think that everyone is susceptible to some degree of addiction especially with something super dangerous like this but I I think it varies for sure and so I think I I do agree that the the addictive personality thing gets thrown around like quite a bit but I think there's also people who you know, have that higher degree of vulnerability to, you know, I guess just being susceptible to addiction. There definitely could be a better way to word it other than addictive personality for sure. But like, like you said, like with people like being able to like have like say like one drink and be able to cut it off. I think there might be a power in just saying no, but that's only to yourself. Like Mm -hmm. that needs to be expressed a whole lot more than people just saying, telling you like, oh, just say no. Like, no, you that's not gonna work like I need like my to like learn that myself like it's like a mental it's like gonna be a mental struggle for like those people like it's gonna be a battle for that person like people need to like understand that like everyone's gonna struggle and mental struggles are the most difficult to overcome 
Oh, yeah, for sure. Mm. By far. I mean, I'm pretty sure we're at a point where that's kind of obvious. Right. Um, any more questions you got? No, the rest are. Kind of talked about a lot there. We're at 35 minutes now. All right. I think we wrap it up. Uh, I feel that's a good idea. Yeah. Um, great talk today, guys. Absolutely. Thanks for joining. Thank you for joining. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for all of our listeners who listened into this podcast. Um, talking about you, Zach. Hopefully we um, didn't waste 35 minutes of your day. Yeah. No, a lot of good thoughts floating around. Scholarly stuff. A plus all around. Definitely good vibes going in. Definitely. Absolutely. All right. So for the Narcotics Podcast, my name is Tom Costigan. Nick Mirario. And Lucas Montesantos signing off.